Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, Law and Order. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 18, 13 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are times when we make errors in understanding the Christian faith, and here's what I mean. The word law, as sometimes used in Christian circles, is only used in a negative fashion. So to call a Christian a law-oriented person, well, that's often to suggest they're not living by faith. But listen, that attitude comes about because a misunderstanding of the Apostle Paul. Paul's not saying the law is wrong or even inferior. What he is saying is that law-keeping doesn't earn our way into heaven. We're not saved by law. See, the purpose of law is very much like the purpose of a mirror. It shows us who we truly are. It's an objective measure of our sin against God. And rightfully understood, the law should drive us to Christ. Once we understand and grasp the perfect law of God, we also grasp that we need a Savior. See, there are many in today's world that simply don't view themselves as sinners. They don't feel like it. In fact, they feel essentially good and decent. That's their internal view of themselves. See, but the law makes all of that a lie. Now today, I don't want to talk about the relationship of the law to the gospel. Instead, I want to talk about the law as a force for good that brings about stability and culture. Look at the countries of the world. When there are countries governed by law rather than governed by dictators, the nations tend to flourish. But when law is replaced by the volatility of a king or a dictator or a military commander, well, expect great evil. Sometimes, in our misunderstanding of the purpose of law, I hear people say that the only reason there's a law is because there's sin. Now, of course, a great part of that is true, but it's not entirely true. So imagine a world where Adam had not sinned. Would we still need a law then? Yeah, we would. We'd still need to decide which side of the road to drive on. We'd have to decide how to manage our affairs in a way that's advantageous to all. Law can simply be a means in which people decide how to operate as a society. But of course, in a sinful society, law is also a means used to restrain evildoers. So let's go to Exodus chapter 18. Israel has still not yet reached Mount Sinai, and yet, as we're going to see from our text today, there are plenty of disputes and legal cases to manage. So how can it be true, given it's still, you know, not yet three months since they've left Egypt? I mean, how are they so cantankerous and so unruly that the legal cases are mounting up? Well, the answer, I think, has to do with their unique circumstances. I mean, first, imagine that while they were slaves, they had few legal rights their taskmasters had their way with them. And when disputes arose between the people of Israel, I would have thought the taskmasters were little interested in anything more than how the slaves produced for the state what the state needed. They wouldn't have been concerned unless productivity had been disrupted. And so while there was no doubt some form of justice among them, the injustice they dealt with daily would have been crushing. And so we have to assume that the pent-up issues in which, you know, one might have had complaints against a fellow Israel, complaints about, you know, which the Egyptians had cared little, now that they were free, they needed to be addressed. But there was also the sheer size of the group. There's two million people. 
You know, and given they'd been a pressure cooker, the threats of the Egyptians, while God, you know, was pouring out plagues on Egypt and and the actual chaos of leaving and the incident at the Red Sea, and then there's the lack of food and water and all these matters, we can only imagine that each one was stepping on somebody else's toes and disputes were constantly arising. One could not allow those matters to remain unaddressed, for if they weren't dealt with, this newly formed nation would very quickly disintegrate. Now, our text begins with the words, the next day. That is, the next day after Jethro's conversion, that next day, Jethro sees what Moses is about. So we come to Exodus 18, verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. Now, this situation, from the crack of dawn until sunset, it gives us a sense of Moses' work schedule. And the fact that he's called upon to do this should be very easy to understand. Many ancient cultures had either the king or the leader of a group of people who also serves as lawgiver and judge. But you have to wonder, how in the world would Moses give himself to providing general leadership to his people and do the judging on a regular basis? And that's when we learn that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the man who had led people for a lifetime, comes with a gift to Moses. It's called wisdom. Jethro sees the problem. Exodus 18, 14 to 18. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. It really is remarkable that on many occasions, a person arriving from the outside is able to see what insiders simply can't see. You might be a business person, perhaps you're a farmer. Perhaps you oversee a department in some area of enterprise. And over time, certain methods or ways of doing things simply take over. Because this is how you do things. You can't imagine things being done in a different way. Indeed, there are people who, when someone suggests that a given way of doing things is ineffective and inefficient, well, they rise up in indignation. They're quite sensitive about the matter. How dare you tell me what to do? You haven't been at this as long as I have. If you had, you'd realize this is the right way of doing things. And so in so many human enterprises, things simply carry on because the people who do things in the way they do things, well, they're determined to defend the way they do things, almost to death. It's called pride. We naturally seek to justify ourselves and not strive toward humility and the best way of doing things. At any rate, Jethro spots the difficulty immediately. He begins with, quite wisely, a question. Explain, he asks Moses, exactly what it is you're doing for this people. He wants to get Moses' mindset. How did things so quickly come to this? That you'd spend an entire day doing this day after day, one case after another. How can you even endure? Why are you doing this? It's an important beginning. Now, let me say to anyone who's ever helped someone either correct behavior or change the way they function, that starting by asking the person to tell them what they're doing rather than telling them what they're doing wrong is the best approach. Let them explain themselves in a context that's not accusatory. Rather, Jethro presents himself not as someone to tell Moses what he's doing wrong, but someone who loves him, 
wants to see if he can help. Clearly, Moses, you're getting exhausted. But Moses doesn't yet see the problem. He thinks there's a justification for acting the way he is. Notice he says, the people come to me to inquire of God. That is, Moses understands the role that God has given him. He's the leader. He's the judge. He's also the prophet of God to these people. And in the future, he's going to build a tent, and he's going to call that tent the tent of meeting. There he would meet with God, and God would speak with him face to face. That was extraordinary. See, I can almost hear Moses' response. Look, God has appointed me to this special role. And by the way, that was true. And notice the last words of Deuteronomy. Those were words that are probably written by Joshua after the death of Moses, and they're placed into the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So here I'm reading Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 to 12. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Nobody like Moses. See, Moses wasn't feeding his father-in-law a line. He was God's appointed prophet for his time. The mantle he wore was not the mantle he had chosen. God had called him. And he wasn't going to underestimate God's unique calling by saying to his father-in-law, oh, shucks, it ain't nothing. Instead, he's determined to play the role that God had placed upon his life. And so Moses is clear. When the people have a complaint against one another, I inquire of God. And even though, as up to that point, God had not yet given the law to Israel, that would come when they were in front of Mount Sinai, hadn't yet been written down, But Moses was before God, and God was revealing his laws to Moses. And because Moses was in a unique position to receive God's laws, he knew he was obligated to give Israel what they had never had before. He was going to give them justice, fairness, equity. See, Moses was aware that the application of the law, rather than the application of brute force, is what the nation needed. He was building a law consciousness in the hearts of people. In this way, he was building them to be the holy people of God. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca Call us at 1-800-663-2425 and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. Moses had every reason for behaving in the way he was. Yeah, it was exhausting, and yeah, it took away from from other important duties, but God had called him to be the prophet and to seek God on behalf of the people. 
And that might have been the end of the matter. I mean, Moses roots down. He explains his good reasons for his actions. He carries on. But Moses is one more thing. He's humble. Even though Jethro has recently come to the conclusion that Yahweh is the great God who reigns supremely, and Moses is the veteran in the things of God, yet Moses is ready to listen. And so Jethro speaks. He says, what you're doing is not good. And Jethro is not challenging Moses' unique role. But he sees that Moses can be whom God called him to be while he does things differently. So let me ask you a question. Are you a leader? Has God called you to a unique role, perhaps in your church or maybe in some other enterprise? And if that's so, it may well be that there are those who don't acknowledge your calling and those that don't might be looking to sabotage you. Yeah, that does happen. But just because that's happening, doesn't mean that everyone who expresses concern for the ways you're doing things is necessarily your opponent. You have to pause and you have to listen. You might find that you have a friend and an advocate where you thought you had an enemy. Well, at any rate, we need to hear Jethro's concern. He says, verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Let me make a statement. You know, I've been a pastor for many years, and a great many of those years were in multi-staff churches. Often a small church pastor can't imagine a world where he isn't doing everything. He preaches, he sets up the order of worship, he leads the major Bible study in the church, he directs the Sunday school department, he counsels with those who are struggling, he might even run a soup kitchen for the needy, he might even cut the lawn in the front of the church building and prune the plants. He just does everything, and oh, how the people speak well of him. He's a servant, they say. He's humble, they say. He's working so hard, they say. But in truth, he's not benefiting anyone, not himself, nor the people, nor is he bringing glory to God. For if he is the only one exercising his gifts and he's teaching his people not to exercise their gifts or to respond to their unique calling from God, well, he's making them into watchers and consumers. And if he were honest, all that hard work that he's doing only elevates his own ego. How wonderful it is to not just sense your calling from God, but also to find trustworthy individuals who are going to share the load and begin to sense their calling from God. So let's read Exodus 18, 19, and 20. Jethro is still speaking. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Notice what Jethro's doing. He's providing Moses with a framework to understand his unique role. He's taking nothing away from Moses' calling. He's affirming it. Indeed, in the very first line, he does affirm that Moses is called to be the leader of Israel. Let me give you a contemporary example. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, that's the role of godly pastors, to work hard to fulfill their calling. They're called upon to teach the word of God and to assure God's people are responding to God and to his word and not to the voices of their culture or the temptation of the enemy of their souls? What should occur if the shepherds whom God places over the congregation become discouraged? I mean, what if their motives are constantly questioned? What if accusation and criticism wear them down? What then? <laughs> then all God's people suffer. 
And Jethro knows that to be true in this case. He doesn't want Moses to be anything less than what he is. He wants him to be God's prophet, declaring the word of God to the people. He wants Moses to declare God's law and to ensure that Israel will be the only nation on earth who's ruled by the perfect law of God. Jethro knows what a tragedy would befall that nation if Moses were to abandon his role. God be with you, he says. And furthermore, he defends the role Moses has. He says, please don't ever stop representing the people before God. The people who are sheep need someone to plead their case before the father of their souls. And the people also need someone to represent the case of the father to them. How horrible it would be if the people had a religion in which everyone did what their own heart dictated to them. Instead, they needed to be ruled by God. Be the lawgiver, he tells Moses. Teach them what's right. Teach them what's wrong. Now, if there's any doubt on whose side Jethro is, he's making it clear. Now, Exodus 18, 21 to 23. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will be able to bear burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now, those of us who live in lands that are built on laws and not on a dictator's will, we recognize this system, don't we? We have lower courts, and they ascend until we come to the Supreme Court. That is, Moses is to be the Supreme Court of the land, but the burden of hearing the lesser cases is going to be regulated by the lower courts. In this fashion, the law of God is still taught, and the rule of law is still enforced, but Moses is not going to get burned out. But Jethro's advice is even more brilliant. Moses is to look for able men, that is, men who have skill in deciding matters. Now, this wouldn't have been an impossible task. I mean, already as we read through Exodus, we can see that Israel has numerous elders. They're heads of families and men who have distinguished themselves in giving leadership, first to their families, then to their clans, and then even to their individual tribes. Moses is hardly left to start from scratch. But Jethro's advice goes beyond choosing the natural leaders. He wants Moses to choose men based on three criteria. First, there are to be men who fear God. That is, they're not to be self-willed men. They are to be men who are known for their quick submission to the will of God and his laws. These are not men to seek their own way, their own justice. They are men who follow God. Second, these men are to be trustworthy. It's an interesting word, the word trustworthy. It means you have to be worthy of the trust that is placed onto them. And when Moses is not present, these men have to do the will of God when no one's looking. Third, there are to be men who never take a bribe. And here's the issue. When a judge makes ruling that benefits him, justice is quickly abandoned. There is no justice when judges are rewarded in some fashion depending on their ruling. The statue that we've all seen of Lady Justice who's blindfolded, yeah, that's an important statue. She does not see who is before her. She makes decisions on the basis of justice. But Lady Justice also must have no interest in the outcome of the case. In other words, Moses is to choose men based on ability and unassailable moral character. No cronyism, no popularity contest. 
How a country is blessed if her people are judges like this. Now to chapter 18, 24 to 27. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. See, I hope you love this passage as much as I do. It's a template for a country with good laws. It's also a template for what is required to have good leadership in the local church or in any other place where leadership is required. It's never good to have only one leader, but you must have leaders who are on the same page and who have good in mind. Furthermore, good leaders listen. They know the difference between the voices that seek to take them down and the voices of those who are concerned for the whole. So the first three words found in Exodus 24 ought to be put on the desks of all leaders all over the world. What are those three words? They are the words, so Moses listened. Yeah, Moses knew that he could still be whom God had called him to be, even while he invited skilled men who feared God to play a role in judging the people. And in this way, he would pave the way to what would happen to Israel after he was gone. Other judges already knew the law, and they would carry on long after Moses was no longer among them. A good leader looks to the future. Thanks, John. You know, in a day when there are so many uh, me-centric people, we're likely repelled by the idea of law, but why was God's law so important? Yeah, I don't think that it is possible for there to be a good society uh, without good laws. Uh, And I say that because I am completely convinced, Ben, as are you, that we are saved by grace and not by law. I want to be very clear about that. However, we also know that as we are saved by the grace of God through faith and by faith alone, it is important for us to strive towards holiness and doing the things that God wants us to do. Um, Ultimately, laws are meant to provide us as a society with life so that we don't tear ourselves apart. I mean, law is part of God's gracious gift to us as individuals and to the life of an entire civilization. So law is good. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. 
So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.